0: Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 will be in verses 67 to 80 this morning. Luke 1, 67 to 80. One of the most important things that I think um, I do as a parent or could do as a parent is be true to my word. My kids remind me of this constantly constantly. Uh, if I say something, I may not even remember I said it. They will be quick to remind me. But you said! It. And uh, and the worst thing that I could do is upset their expectations of what my word actually means. In our, our text of Scripture this morning, uh, we're going to see Zechariah reminding us in this prophecy that he utters that God is true to His word. Look at Luke 1, 67 to eighty. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he, is, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy Because, the tender, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of, into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray over this word. Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we've read your word, that you would speak to us that you would speak in place of me to us, your people, that you would open our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our ears, to both see what you have to say to us, to hear what your word says to us, and our hearts to obey it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage this morning is really the conclusion of a story that's been going on for about nine months up to this point where Zechariah, who you'll remember is the father of John the Baptist, is stricken mute by the angel Gabriel. And as a, as a reminder, you can look in your text, if you go all the way back to the beginning of Luke there in verse 9, you'll remember and you'll see there that Zechariah was chosen by Lot to serve in the temple, uh, which was the custom of the priest at that time. So we see in verse 5, that he, it, Luke tells us that he's of Abijah's division, which is one of the 24 divisions of the priesthood. And so there's about 18,000 priests in the division that serve in the temple. And so each division then of the 24 divisions are responsible for serving in the temple two weeks out of the year. Now some of those weeks would fall on holiday weeks and some of them would serve at, at different times of the year. And Zechariah and his wife, we find out, live outside the city of Jerusalem. Whereas the high priest is going to live inside the city of Jerusalem. He and his wife live outside the city of Jerusalem. So they would come into Jerusalem to perform various duties during the temple in their two weeks of service. And so this is one of those times at the beginning of this story where Zechariah is serving his assigned job. Now, this particular job... We find Zechariah doing as that story opens is that he's serving actually in the temple. He's putting incense on the altar. He's doing various things that the priest would would get to do inside the temple. Now the irony is that Zechariah, this is the first time he's ever done this in his life. A priest would only be able to serve inside the temple and do this one time in his life, and he's chosen to do it by the casting of lots, the rolling of dice, the drawing of straws, however you want to put it. And we see in verse 7, Luke tells us that he's advanced in years. So not only is this the only time he's ever done this in his life, but he is very old. And we see that uh, there in, in Luke 1, 7. So if you put all this together, Luke is painting this picture of Zechariah's priestly career. He's been going to the Super Bowl every year, since he was a little kid, and when he's about 80 years old, his seat is called to step on the field at halftime and throw footballs through the Dr. Pepper bottle, right? So here we go. Imagine the nerves of Zechariah. Imagine just the feeling, even if you've been doing this, serving as a priest for some time, this is the first time that you're doing this specific job. Even if you're well trained for something like that, you know he has to have some nerves about him. God uses that moment to rock his world. Now, there's humor in that, right? He could have done this hours before he goes into the temple. He didn't. What's the hurry? He could have waited a week after. What's a week amongst friends? He could have told him a week later and said, Listen, your wife's pregnant that's not what he does. He uses the time where Zechariah is the most nervous, the most apprehensive to give him the appearance of an angel. To tell him, Zechariah, even though you're incredibly old and your wife is old as well, I have come to give you this important news bulletin. So Gabriel comes to inform Zechariah that he and his wife are going to have a child. Talk about an Inopportune time for an angel to appear to you. Gabriel tells Zechariah that he and Elizabeth are going to have a child, but obviously he's really old. Elizabeth is well past the childbearing years. And so he says, Gabriel, I mean, uh, uh, Zechariah says back to Gabriel, okay, how do I know this is going to come true? Gabriel takes personal offense to this and he says, You know it's personally true because I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. So he strikes him mute for nine months. So if you're in Luke's audience... Oh, back to our passage. This is the first time in nine months Zechariah has opened his mouth to speak, mind you. If you're in Luke's audience and you're even remotely familiar with the Old Testament, then you're gonna bring, it's going to bring to mind the story of Abraham and Sarah. I mentioned this last week even briefly. Both Zechariah and Abraham are very old. For both of them, an angel comes to them to tell them that their wives are going to give birth miraculously because they are both past childbearing age. Both Zechariah and Abraham respond in almost the exact same way. Abraham says, How am I to know that? And Zechariah says, How shall I know this? It's the same response they both give to the angel. Both of them appeal to their old age as a reason that God could not possibly do this. Zechariah says, For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And Abraham says, shall a child be born to, to, an, uh, to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Both of their responses are nearly exactly the same, and the scenario around them being told that their wife is going to have a child is nearly exactly the same. Now these parallels between Zechariah and Abraham are actually incredibly important for the passage that we're reading this morning. You may notice that Abraham occupies some space in Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah breaks out into what I'm just going to refer to as Zechariah's song. And right in the middle, in verse 73, he brings attention to the fact that God has remembered his promise to Abraham. Which, it's not a coincidence that this is right smack dab in the middle of Zechariah's song, because the middle of this passage is the most important part. This passage is built as a chiasm. We've talked about chiasms a lot in both here and on Wednesday night. But very simply, you don't have to remember what a chiasm is. Just very simply, what you need to know is that the things that Zechariah brings up at the beginning are addressed in reverse order at the end. So the first thing that he brings up is talked about again at the very end. The next thing that he brings up is talked about just before that, and on and on, on to the middle of the passage. But what that leaves us with is right in the center of the passage becomes the most important point. The thing that the rest of the passage is actually building to or building away from. So effectively, that center part of the passage becomes like a hinge for the rest of the passage. You get it? You tracking with me so far? So, And what is the center of that passage? It hinges on the fulfillment of God's Word, His promise that He made to Abraham many, many, many years ago. So what that tells us then is that as we read this passage, that the point of the whole passage is God's faithfulness to fulfill His promises. So when you understand that, And then you go back to read Zechariah's song, it starts to fill out the details a little bit more. And you can see how Zechariah is underlining all of God's faithfulness to Israel in the past, to Israel in the present, and to all the things that he's doing for his people in the future. Remember though that the reason that Zechariah is even able to speak at this moment is because his son John has been born. That's the occasion. Sarah, I mean, Elizabeth, has given birth, and Zechariah has taken John, his son. They have named him. The Lord has opened his mouth. The Lord has opened his eyes. He has been filled with the Spirit. And that's what causes him to sing this song. So I want you to picture Zechariah holding his baby boy, not having been able to speak, For nine straight months. And the moment he names him John as the angel told him to, the Lord opens his mouth and he begins uttering this prophecy over John for everyone else to hear. And what he's speaking about in this passage is not only the significance of this baby that he's holding, but also the birth of his cousin Jesus that's coming along in about six months. And he can't help but tying the two together. And so he's saying that the birth of these two children represents at least four things. I want to name them all for you here. So, the first thing is the birth of these two children represents the fulfillment of the promise of redemption. The fulfillment of the promise of redemption. So, two things you need to know about coming into this passage. First is that John and Jesus' story are uniquely tied together, they're inseparable. You cannot separate John and Jesus' story. They're a package deal. If Jesus is the main book, then the preface is John the Baptist, right? You can't separate them out of the pages of the book. But remember, Zechariah was silenced precisely because he did not believe what was going to happen. And now his mouth is opened. Why? Because he does believe. The Spirit has given him the eyes to see and also given him the mouth to speak. And so he believes that his son, this baby that he's holding, is marking the inauguration of the kingdom of the Messiah. And so he actually believes so strongly in what's going to happen that he pronounces it as God has already done it. So he's holding this baby And he's understanding that Jesus is coming. And remember, this is a baby. This is not an adult. And yet he understands what God has done in giving him a child means that all the other promises that he's promised are as good as fulfilled. So John and Jesus go together. But the second thing you need to pay attention to is how this prophecy flips from what God has done in the first part of the passage, to what He will do in the end. In verse 68, He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Well, how has He visited and redeemed His people? Well, In the birth of John, He has inaugurated the kingdom of the Messiah. But how has God redeemed His people? What does that mean that God has redeemed His people? Well, at the end is the answer at the very end of the passage. And you can spot it because he says he is visited and redeemed. And then at the end of the passage, he comes back to this word visit. Look at verse 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So what he's speaking about is the redemption, specifically the visitation of God, the redemption of his people that he's accomplishing in these two children is that he's leading us out of the shadow of death. Mainly that's how God is visiting us. That's how he is redeeming us. He is buying us back from death. Now why is that an important thing for Zechariah to call out right here at the beginning? Because this is what the world has been waiting on all as far, dating as far back to Genesis 3, the original couple. Remember, Genesis is giving us that picture of how this whole thing began and specifically how the story of Israel and God's interaction with his people began. Here is Adam and Eve who live in a garden in perfect peace. And yet in Genesis chapter 3, both of them sin and fall, and what is given to them as a result of their sin? Death. Death comes from one man, Adam. So the birth of John, Zechariah says, means that God is right now fulfilling a promise to the world. A promise that he gives in Genesis 3.15, which we talked about last week, and again it shows up this week. The promise in Genesis 3.15 is that there's someone coming to undo all of this. And so Zechariah is here calling it out. The birth of John means that God is right now in the process of fulfilling His promise that He made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and that is to remove the curse of death from His people. second thing that he gets to is that the birth of these two children represent the fulfillment of the promise of the prophets. These two children represent the fulfillment of the promise of the prophets. Look at what God has done in verse 69 and 70. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David And he, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. So God made a promise in the past through the prophets that He was going to raise up a horn. What is a horn? A horn is a ruler. So if you think of a beast, in the Bible we get this common term, beast. And it, it basically is a governmental agency, a governmental power. Right? A horn is the ruler that 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 is that represents that government. So if you think of like a just picture a rhinoceros for just a second, all right? Bear with me. I know this is a little weird. The rhinoceros, the beast, is kind of the power. What represents his power? That big horn on the front of his nose. Or a bull. Big, strong beast, but what represents his power? The horns on top of his head. So in the same way, a beast is like a governmental agency and the horn is a ruler. And so Zechariah says, look, the prophets have told us that he is going to raise up a horn, a ruler who is going to come from the line of David and redeem us or buy us back or uh, or save us. Think about Jeremiah 23, 5-6. to six. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So we're told back in Genesis that there's going to be a specific person coming forward who is going to deal with the serpent, who is going to crush the head of the serpent. But what happens as the Old Testament develops is that it begins to narrow down where that seed is going to come from. So we have that promise given to us in Genesis 3, but what do we get in Genesis chapter 12? We get a narrowing to a specific family, and it is specifically the family of Abraham. But then Abraham's kids have, or grandkids, have a whole mess of children. And they're spread out over multiple nations and over various and sundry places. And so, what God does as the Old Testament develops is He steadily, through His prophets, begins to narrow that down even more precisely. So, what do we get in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12? When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And who is God talking to through the prophet Nathan at that point? He's talking to David. So he's narrowed down from Abraham's family, now specifically it's coming through the line of David. And so God promised long ago that he was going to deliver his children through the seed of David. And now, look at verses 76 and 77 in our passage. Look at what he's doing now. So that's what he did do. Look at what he's doing now. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of of their sins. So God is fulfilling all that He had promised through the prophets of old. Now, what is He doing? Appointing one last prophet. And what is John's job? John is coming forth to proclaim a singular person as the offspring. John's job is to come into the world as the holy prophet of, just like the holy prophets of old, except now instead of narrowing it down to a general family, he's specifying precisely who that person is. But do you notice what Zechariah identifies as the chief problem that this Messiah is coming to fix? The forgiveness of sins. This is the problem. This is exactly, precisely, what that offspring is coming to do. So we don't just have to step back and go, he's coming to do war with Rome or with any other nation that might be threatening the Jews at the time. No, specifically, this Messiah is understood to come forward and do battle with the serpent who brings sin into the world by tempting Adam and Eve. There was something that happened in the garden When Adam and Eve fell, their allegiance shifted from God to sin, to their own desires, essentially. They were lured and enticed by their own desires and fell. And so what happened as a result from then on out is you and I have an allegiance that's gravitated towards our own self-preservation, our own desire for sin, our own desire for self-righteousness, our own desire for justification. So every single one of us come out of the womb, tainted from head to toe by sin. Zechariah identifies the purpose of this Messiah coming forward is not merely to be a political adversary to Rome. His job is to come forward and bring forgiveness of sin to God's people. That is chiefly the problem. Third, These two children represent the fulfillment of the promise of deliverance. There's a specific kind of deliverance that was promised to Israel, an expectation of what the Messiah would do when he comes. Look at what Zechariah says in verse 71 that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is what he had proclaimed through the prophets of old that we would be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us. So there's a reason that the Jews assumed when the Messiah came forth that He was going to be mainly a political deliverer. That He was going to deliver deliver a decisive military victory to the Jews at, at the expense of the Romans. So imagine what kind of king David was. Imagine living under the kingdom of David. What does David provide to his people? Well, mainly he provides military victory. He comes in and drives out the enemy. The kingdom expands under David and there's relative peace from their enemies. But then the people, it says in the text of the Old Testament, people had peace on all sides when Solomon established his his throne. That's significant because at the point where God's people had been in, entrenched in battle over sin and over all kinds of uh, uh, oppressors, like think of Egypt and going through the, the wilderness and trying to drive out the enemies in front of them and the Philistines and all of these kinds of things. To get to the kingdom of Solomon and to have peace on all sides means that you're starting to move back to Eden and look a lot less like Egypt, right? So there's a significance to that. There's, there's, a, there's hope there. So if you have a Messiah who's of the line of David coming to give relief from the enemies, then naturally the thought is, well, that's going to be militarily. We're under the oppression of Rome now. But now notice the parallel in 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Does He say that we have now Political freedom? Does he say that we does it have anything to do with governments or authorities? Absolutely not. In the past, God has spoken through the holy prophets that we would be saved from our enemies, and now God is delivering on that promise. But notice the clarity that Zechariah gives to to what we're being saved to. This is the important part to notice. What are we being saved to? We've already seen that God came to visit His people and to redeem His people by saving them from death. But what is He saving us to now? Zechariah says that we might be saved to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. What does that mean? Brothers and sisters, He has saved you for the purpose of worship. That is why you exist. We celebrate at Christmas that God the Father sent His Son to take on flesh to live a perfect life, but to die the death of a sinner. To die in my place, taking the wrath that I deserve from God for me. That He stood in my place on the cross. So if by faith you trust in Christ for your salvation, then you currently, right now, stand as holy and righteous before Him all of your days. Do you understand that? I don't feel like that. Do you? I certainly don't feel like most of the time that I walk into this place or at my home or wherever that I stand before God as holy and righteous. Do you often feel as though you are holy and righteous? I don't think so. I think for the most part, most of us spend our time thinking about all of the ways we're unholy and unrighteous. Even when we come in here, what do we long for when we sing songs and pray prayers and hear preaching and and read Scripture? What is it that we long for more than anything? Don't we long for distracted free worship? You're surrounded by your kids and their notable distractions to you, right? We want our kids in here, and we tell everybody, bring your kids in here. It's not a big deal to us. We think that they learn worship by watching you. And so you're welcome to bring them in here, but they do provide a distraction, don't they? Of course they do. They ask questions at inopportune times. They need to go to the bathroom all the time. So for parents, you live in a world right now where your worship is perpetually distracted. And if it's not parents, then you didn't get a good night's sleep the night before. And so you come in here and you fall asleep, right? Or somebody's boring, certainly not me, but somebody might be boring or a little too long and it causes us to go to sleep and you can't help it sometimes. Or we come in and we're thinking about all kinds of other things. You had a fight with him out in the car before on your way here, and you're like, man, I, I could just kill him. That's all you think, right? The point is that you come in here to worship, and your worship is distracted. You, you, you're not feeling as though you are holy and righteous before him. What he's telling you is that in the coming of Christ... Your worship to the Lord has been spiritually restored, including all the distractions, including all the faithlessness that you often exhibit throughout the week, that we often exhibit throughout the week. All of that has been bought and paid for by Christ. What has happened spiritually, a spiritual reality, is that you stand in your distracted worship before the Lord as holy and righteous. It's a reality that has been accomplished. But you understand Jesus didn't stay in the grave. On the third day, He rose from the dead. And what does that mean for us? It means that His resurrection is something we too are going to experience. So if the reality for us before the Lord, is holy and righteous before Him, then what we are going to experience is a resurrection from the dead just like what Jesus experienced. So what does that mean for our fear of death? It's no longer there. Death has been taken off the table. It's been removed from the conversation. So when we worship the Lord, we do so without fear of our enemies. It has nothing to do with the government. In fact, governments may turn on us at any moment. They do for brothers and sisters around the world all the time. But is that any consequence for people who have no fear of death? No. So what Christ has done is not only restored our worship before the Lord, so that we are holy and blameless and may at any time enter into worship. But then he has also brought us back from the dead so that we have no fear of that either. What you and I need to understand is two things. First, your life's purpose is to worship God, your life's purpose is to worship God. That is the chief end of man. So if your roots are firmly grounded in the family of God, then the place where you are most satisfied is in service to Him. Now you might think of worship and service as two different things. But in this passage, they are the same thing. They are synonymous. Worship and service are... Are synonymous. Often we think of worship as only this. A time where we come together, where we sing, and what we do on Sunday morning. And that's not true. That's not only what worship is. That is worship. That's not only what worship is. Worship is also the lifestyle of service to God that happens subsequent to this. Before and after this. Your life, its purpose, is to worship God is to serve Him. That doesn't matter if you're a mechanic or an engineer or a plumber or a pastor. Your life's purpose is to be served in worship to God. The second thing that we need to understand is that this is the reality that you currently live in. What Zechariah is identifying here, serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days, is the reality that you currently live in. This is not something that we're anticipating in our future. Sure, it will be perfect in our future. We're gathered around the throne of Christ, worshiping Him for all eternity. Yes, for sure. But this is a reality that you currently live in. The Old Testament prophets were prophesying about your day. Do you realize that? The day where you live under the kingship of Messiah Jesus. They were talking about your day. They long to live in the time that you live in. Now, so here in this reality, God has removed death from the conversation so we can serve Him all of our days without fear of reprisal because death is no longer an option. Your allegiance has been officially changed from allegiance to the self or allegiance to sin, allegiance to the world, all the same thing, to allegiance to Christ. That's what's happened now. That's the reality. So the birth of these two babies signals the fulfillment of the promise of redemption from the dead that God has promised. The fulfillment of the promise uh, from the prophets for a Davidic king to come and do this. And the fulfillment of the promise of deliverance from our enemies and restoration to our purpose. But finally the fulfillment of the promise of the covenant to Abraham it's the fulfillment of the promise of the covenant to Abraham I think the similarities that exist between uh, Abraham and Zechariah that Luke is identifying in this chapter is not merely a coincidence you may notice that the topic of Abraham comes up right here in the middle in verse 72 and 73 which is obviously as I've said, right in the middle of this passage. And this is the point where everything in the passage pivots because it has to be asked at some point along the way, why? Why has God done this? Why has He brought this about? Why has He chosen now, at this particular time in history? Why has He chosen these two in particular? Why is it that he has done this? And you might think the answer is, well, it's at this point that humanity just became peachy. They were oh so sweet in the first century. They were so kind to one another. This was a perfect time for Jesus to come. Or maybe, oh, it's because the roads, the way the roads were constructed that the gospel could go out, and so God was like, alright, I think everything's setting up just nicely. This, this might be a really good time to go ahead and send Jesus. Why has God done this? Why has He chosen now to save His people? And the answer is, because He swore to Abraham that He would. That's the answer. Why has God saved anyone Because he swore to Abraham that he would. That's what he says. Because he swore to Abraham that he would. This is what Zechariah is overflowing with joy about in the birth of his son. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 67? And the Spirit opens his eyes to see what God is doing here. And at at the point where he sees that same Spirit opens his mouth for the first time in nine months to utter these prayers Prophetic words. At the center of it is a simple message. God is faithful to His Word. He swore that He would do this. And He's faithful to His Word. The parallels between Elizabeth and Sarah, between Zechariah and Abraham, they exist and they're brought to mind by Luke for the purpose of reminding you of where this whole thing began. Back in the days of Genesis 12 where God swears to Abraham that he's going to make of him a great nation. He's going to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse him and through him all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Luke is now refreshing that and and reminding you remember how old Sarah was. Remember how old Elizabeth is. You remember how old Abraham was and what he said to the angel? Remember how old Zechariah is and how old And what he said to the the angel? He's reminding us of Abraham's saga that's been going on for these many chapters in the Bible. And he's saying to us that Abraham's saga is coming to a close. And all that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, all that was promised to David, all the promises of God, find their yes in Christ. That all of this is building to a crescendo and bringing the close to human history where God reminds everyone once and for all those promises that I made years ago I am faithful to. This is precisely the person that is going to crush the head of the serpent. And this is the child that's going to point him out to everyone. Elizabeth's Barrenness, in other words, was not an accident. you think about that for just a second? Think about the pain that she went through her entire life. Imagine how painful her 20s and 30s were in her barrenness. She says herself in verse 24 that she had faced disgrace among her people. She was a reproach amongst her people. The first thing that Gabriel says to Zechariah when he meets him in the temple is your prayer has been answered. So as old as Zechariah and Elizabeth are, and as long as she had been a reproach amongst her people, a disgrace amongst her people, they have been praying ceaselessly for a child. And Gabriel says to him, Your prayer has been answered. So what does that mean? If she is connected, and, and she's reminding us of the promise that God made so many years ago, then, and her barrenness obviously brought about a great sorrow in her life, little did she know That the more barren she grew, the older she became, the more stark the connection to Sarah God was making in the minds of the people around her. God is shouting to all of His people. Remember, 400 years without a prophet. 400 years without God showing up, talking to them, speaking to them, giving them an interpretation of how things are happening around them. 400 years of tragedy. What do you think the people are thinking? Well, He's forgotten all about us. At this point, God doesn't even remember His people anymore. And yet, here is this barren woman growing older by the minute, at which point God is shouting through her, I still remember. I'm still faithful to my promises. See, the faithfulness of God shines the brightest against the backdrop of sorrow. Advent for us is nothing if not a reminder that God is faithful to His promises. I don't know the number of tragedies and things that you're thinking about and dealing with on a daily basis. All the many things that plague your mind or weigh you down or give you so much despair, I don't know all of them. I might be privileged to know some, but I certainly don't know all of them and wouldn't pretend to know all of them. But here we have testimony from Zechariah. We have testimony from God's Word from the beginning of pages of Genesis all the way through to right here in Zechariah's own mouth. God is faithful to His promises. That doesn't mean that the cancer goes away or that the job is had. That doesn't mean that your boss changes his mind and chooses to hire you back again. It doesn't mean that you always get the job you go in and interview for. And it doesn't mean that, it, that at some point in your life, all of this is going to turn around. I know you've been on a bad streak here lately, but at some point, all of this is going to turn around. I have a friend a college roommate. He's my age, has stage 4 colon cancer. He has two kids and a wife. He's a minister, has stage 4 colon cancer. How does a 37-year-old guy end up with stage 4 colon cancer? I don't know. Another friend of mine just some years ago was 41 and died of the same colon cancer. Sometimes the cancer takes them. Sometimes, at some point, we're going to give way to old age, to heart attacks, to death, to cancer, to Whatever. There's no promise in here that if you just believe hard enough, all of that's going to turn around. There's no promise that it's all going to work out like that in this life. The promise that's still outstanding for us is that death won't have the final say. That because Christ rose from the dead, he will return. Not only will he return, but the dead in Christ will rise. And those who are alive will be caught up with them. They will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. That we will dwell on new earth with Christ as our king forever. Where death will not have reign anymore. That is the promise that's still outstanding for us. The question is, how do we trust that God is going to be true to his promise? Well, that's what this is for. That's what the Christmas season is actually for, is to remind us God is true to his promise. He hasn't promised you a job. He hasn't promised you health, safety. He hasn't promised you finances to be amazing. He's promised you resurrection from the dead. He's promised you life eternal. Those are the promises that he still got outstanding. And what all of that means is that all the sorrow you deal with now has a purpose? Every bit of it has a purpose. Every bit of it is sharpening and conforming you into the image of Christ. That you may come to trust God even more. That when those days get really dark, you'll remember God has been faithful in the past. And what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what He will do in the future, though He's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for trust trust in my own heart, trust in the heart and lives of of all of us here as members. Trust that we will place squarely in you, in your faithfulness to your own word. Trust that not only is Christ and his death sufficient for us, but trust that we're not alone and we won't be left here. That death is not the end, that Christ will return. To judge the living and the dead. That we will be raised with Him to eternal life. Trust in all of the promises that you have still outstanding. I Pray that we would trust. Where we have failed. Where we have ceased to trust. Where we have lost faith. I pray that you would give us encouragement and correction. To know that the records of history bear out your faithfulness to your people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.